Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Baucom, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. All right, what do you guys think? You like the tiny books of the Bible? They're pretty cool, right? I mean, I think we've gotten a lot out of this. I didn't choose this series. It was chosen for me. Uh, by our sermon-based small group leaders and the groups that they talk to, and the next series as well, chosen by them that I'll begin on Palm Sunday. Uh, So nonetheless, it's been a good discipline for me. I've had to go back to school to learn a lot about these books myself because, like you, I don't study them very often. Now, I try to read the Bible every year, and I want to encourage you to do that too. Uh, There's some great plans to do that. I've used different plans. All of them are about the same, but um, it really is a great thing to get into the Word of God. You'll find everything you're feeling in your heart, everything you're thinking, it's, it's all there. The Bible speaks for me when I can't speak for myself so often. And I'm going to talk about some things today where that is definitely true. But it's been great to get into these little things that are pretty big. So big things really can come in small packages. They're huge. I mean, the the biggest things in your life are not the things that can be measured with immensity, probably. They're things that that seem small. And these little books of the Bible are power-packed. So 2 and 3 John, Philemon, Obadiah, Nahum, the only one that's out of order because I preached Nahum and Obadiah together. Jude, Titus, 2 Thessalonians, Haggai and Habakkuk, and maybe we'll go one deeper. I don't know. We're trying to figure out what we're going to do with a gap week that I left because we didn't have any snow. Of course, we still could not be able to meet at some point, but we didn't have any snow. So uh, that being the case, we'll see what we do here, and maybe we'll get into one of these little stories because so far, what we've mostly looked at are the personal letters and a couple of early warnings. These are small prophecies, if you will, shots fired across the bow at a particular place in time. But we haven't gotten into the short stories that are found in the next 10 books of the Bible if we measure them by how small they are. But that's what the little books are. They're easy to study, these tiny books, uh, because you can look for a singular theme. So far, every book we've studied has had one theme. There may be one or two, if we go a little further, that have two. But for the most part, tiny books have one big idea. And once you figure out what that big idea is, everything else you can tuck underneath it, and you can pretty much understand the book without my help or without reading a commentary. And that's one of the great things about these these tiny books. Now, before I go to the next tiny book, because we've covered 2nd and 3rd John, Philemon, Obadiah, Nahum, Jude, and Titus, before I go to the next book, let me ask you about this word. Do you know what this word means? Resilience, the ability to endure and bounce back. Now, I'm guessing that I'd get a different definition from each of you based on what you do for a living. Maybe some of you never deal with this word, but a lot of you do in some capacity. So, for example, if you are working in IT, you use the word resilience and its accompanying word redundancy all the time, all the time, and you ask yourself the question, Are our systems resilient? That is, if they were to be bombarded, could they respond and recover? And if they go down, how quickly would it take us uh, to get them back up? You think the people at Robinhood are thinking about this this week? You guys don't know what Robinhood is? It's a free trading branch. They went down because they were bombarded with trades. Their system wasn't resilient. Now they're being sued, which is kind of interesting. They, they let you do that for free, and then you're going to sue them. But anyway, that's a different story. That's what we expect in this culture. But they, they didn't have resilience. And so you may deal with that in, in IT, in some system like that. Maybe you deal with the security of the nation. 
You deal either with the military or uh, maybe you're one of those spooky people. But whatever you do, you talk about the resilience of our military and of our systems. It's a word we use a lot, and it's a really important word. That is, that is how much could we really handle if it were to be brought at us and we didn't have control over it? How much are we ready to respond to? You use this word if you're in the medical field. So in medicine, we talk about the resilience of our medical system, and it might be really tested. You know, the reason that we're trying to limit epidemic is not so much that we can stop the spread of something, because we probably can't, but because we don't want to see it happen in small places a lot at one time because it can overwhelm the medical system. And so one of the things we ask is how resilient is that system? If we were to see a year where even the flu were worse, what could we do to respond to it? So if you are in the medical community, you use this word. You use this word if you are dealing with any number of things, but you use it also if you're a counselor, a psychologist, a sociologist, And when you use the word resilience in that capacity, you're not using it the same way an economist would. Because in financial markets, we talk about how resilient our markets are. And our question we're asking if we're working with human beings is how resilient are people? That is, how well can they respond, endure, and bounce back? By the way, there's been a ton of research done on this. There are, there are way many books, whole books written on the issue of resilience. I, I wish I'd thought of the word. It's a great word. If Paul had the word when he wrote, he'd have used it. It's, an, it's a magnificent word. And one of the places that the most research is being done with this right now is with people in the military who are returning from theaters of operation, from places where they've been in combat, people who are dealing with PTSD. Because the military is asking the question, how can we build in a measure of resilience in our troops, our soldiers, so that we know they're going to be in difficult situations? Are they able to endure and to bounce back and respond? But all of us have to be resilient, right? And I can tell you this, across 35 years of ministry, I see some people who are quite resilient, amazingly, remarkably resilient, and some people who really aren't. And my question has always been, what is it that makes some people so resilient? Well, there's been a lot of research done about what makes people so resilient, and I could lay out about 10 things, and and all of them are kind of interesting, but relative to what we're doing here today, let me talk about a couple of things that you did today to build in resilience the capacity to endure and to bounce back. So first of all, you attached yourself to community. Now, it wasn't easy this morning. Am I right? It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy for me either. It was was way dark when I got up. It wasn't easy to get out of that bed today and to drag yourself over here. Some of you are a little late, but that's okay. It's all right. You're here. And the reason you did that is because connecting yourself to the community of faith builds resilience into who you are. One of the key indicators that a person will be resilient is that they have a meaningful social network, not just online stuff. Meaningful contact with human beings that love them and care for them and accept them as who they are. That's a big deal. And when you come to Columbia, that's what you get. It can't be replaced. It's simply, we, we take it for granted and it can't be replaced. It is, it is immeasurable, it is so powerful, It is a remarkable thing. The body of Christ is an amazing thing. Amen? It's an amazing thing. And you attached yourself to it. And for those of you who are going to be involved in sermon-based small groups after this, you've gone the next step. That's a big deal. 
you attached yourself in a meaningful way to a few people. And for those of you who found one or two or three people that you're walking in faith with, that's huge. It's enormous. That is one of the biggest sources there is of resilience. And it's something you can control. Now, I'm going to get to this in a little while. There's some things you can't control and some things you can't. One of the things that predicts whether a person will be resilient is something they can't control. It's how they were reared in their first three to five years of life. Parents, listen to me. Those days are so important. I I, want to tell you how important it is to be part of that community of grace in those years. How significant that is because if you are a resilient person because your parents built that into you at an early age, then just pause for a second just in your brain and say, thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. But if you didn't get that, there are other ways you can offset what wasn't given to you that you couldn't control. And community, being attached to family, is something you can control. Another thing that predicts that people will be resilient is that they have an unchanging system of belief. That's the way it's talked about in sociology. You and I call that faith. Walking by faith and not by sight. What we believe actually predicts how resilient we will be when struggle comes our way. So you've done that today too. You've attached yourself to something that is true and right and good and significant and meaningful. So you're here today, you've attached yourself to a community and you've attached yourself to the community of grace and therefore you've attached yourself to the bounds of faith and you've attached yourself to belief and so I want you to pause right now and just congratulate yourself because you did it, okay? So give yourselves a hand. Come on now. Another thing that makes people resilient is their capacity to affirm themselves as resilient. Let's do that again, okay? Woo! All right. Now, I could go on and on about this because it's a fascinating topic. And you may say, well, what what does this have to do with the Bible? I think the Bible is all about resilience, honestly. I think it's just wound through all the pages, and it's wound through the letter that we'll study today. So the book that we study today will deal with this capacity to grow where it seems impossible to grow, to thrive where it seems impossible to thrive, to somehow flourish in the deserts of life to somehow do it. And actually, this book is not only theologically clear, it's pretty practical. So let's just jump into it in a minute. First of all, let's recognize that Jesus told us it wasn't gonna be easy. Okay, he, he wanted to set our expectations correctly. And by the way, expectations have a lot to do with resiliency. If you believe life's just gonna always deliver flowers for you, it's gonna be a tough world for you. But if you believe you'll face trouble and you think you can be ready for it, and you think you can deal with it well, you'll be all right. So in this world, Jesus said, you what? Will have trouble. It's remarkable how many many people could say more than this, and Jesus used, in fact, in the Greek, it's fewer words. Jesus just said, just so you'll know, it's gonna suck sometimes, okay? But take heart, I have overcome the world. There's a lot in that one little statement, isn't there? You're going to have trouble. That's the way it's going to be. Take heart. I've already overcome it for you. I've already taken care of it. Now, if that's the case, then we understand a little more what we're looking at when we take a look at Paul's book of 2 Thessalonians, his second 
epistle to the church at Thessalonica. Second Thessalonians, a tiny little book, three chapters, seven shortest in the Bible. We don't preach it very often. There's one reason for that is it's a lot like another book. I'll get to that in a second. But there are a number of reasons why we don't dig deep here. And as I've looked at this one, just like all the others, I've realized I should have preached this a long time ago. So, you know, God gave it as a gift. So let's, let's look at it. Traditionally, this letter is ascribed to Paul and to Timothy. There's some debate over this. And if you want to spend your time on that debate, be my guest. New Testament scholars, they love this stuff. They eat this stuff for breakfast. I mean, those of us who went to, to college classes spent a lot of time talking about authorship. And the reason they say that is because 2 Thessalonians is a whole lot like 1 Thessalonians in content but it's different in form. Paul has a very distinctive form. If you ever take Greek, the last thing you'll translate is Paul. The first thing you'll translate, probably 1 John. You may get to a gospel, maybe Mark, pretty easy to translate. Eventually, you'll get to Romans. And man, now you're in the deep water because what Paul does is he just rambles and rambles and rambles in very proper Greek. <laughs> it's really good writing. It's just run on. That's what it is. Not Second Thessalonians. Kind of a choppy little thing. So we ask ourselves the question, is that written by the same guy who wrote 1 Thessalonians? Well, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, I'm writing this with Timothy, I think he wants to fire off a quick second letter to the church at Thessalonica because of what's going on. He says, Timothy, jot this down, get this up there. And again, the content's so similar to 1 Thessalonians, I think it's a needless argument. So Paul wrote it. Let's just say this is Paul's stuff. It is from Paul's team. It's from his leadership team to the church at Thessalonica. Secondly, it's mostly a restatement of 1 Thessalonians. And by the way, 1 Thessalonians better. <laughs> Just being honest here. It's a little more profound. There's more there. There's more stuff there. There's a little easier to preach. But in its simplicity, by boiling down the issues to just a couple, it could be that 2 Thessalonians is easier to pluck from the vine a little easier to understand. So let's see if that's the case as we look at it. And let's do that, first of all, by asking about the church to whom it's written. This is not a, an encyclical. This is written to one church. It's written to the church at Thessalonica, which was the second church established by Paul in a major European city. Now, again, here's our map. You're accustomed to looking at this by now. And this is Thessalonica, if you're not familiar with where it is. So it's right in the heart of Europe. And Europe is an increasingly important place in Paul's day. So Paul knows the gospel's got to take hold in Europe, and it did. So this is really important work that he's doing. We think, we think that Paul was probably at Corinth as he wrote, so he's not very far away. He probably wrote that letter and got it to Thessalonica really quickly, like in two days. And the reason he did it is there was a crisis right at that moment. Okay, you like that, Chris? Chris gets, he gets amused by my telestrating. You line up right here, right here, right here, and then you run the play. Okay, so... So now you know a little bit about the geography of the region and how close Paul was. And now here's what you need to know. You need to know something about what this church was experiencing. This was a church under severe and persistent persecution. Now, intriguingly, historically, we don't know the source of that persecution. Sometimes we do. We'll read the New Testament and we'll say, ah, this was, this was this emperor and this was this situation in this region. But in Europe of this time, we're not exactly sure from whence came the persecution. Now let me point something out to you because this is educational and instructive about how we live today. So do you know, I'm assuming you do, that there are more people being persecuted for the Christian faith today than at any point in Christian history? Did you know that? Nod your head if you knew. Wake up now. Wake up. You can take a nap later. 
Okay. At any point in Christian history, we should be setting the example and the model right now for their sakes. Living for their sake, for Christ's glory and their sake right now because they need, they desperately need for us to stand firm when they're in places that are really difficult to stand firm. People are being tortured, people are being killed, churches are being burned, I mean every single day. One place that that's happening, certainly not the only place and not the worst place, but one place we talk about a lot because we worked there for 10 years is India. And I was able to see the transformation, the change, shouldn't call it transformation probably, the the digression of India in the time that I traveled there. And if any of you travel there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's gotten really difficult for the church there now, and it wasn't when we first started working. And the reason is because when Modi came into office and when he brought in his plan, his plan was to unite the country around Hinduism, which is the dominant religion there. And he made a plan, and he stated that plan, or one of his deputies did, to eliminate all monotheism from India by 2025. We're getting close, getting pretty close. And it's working pretty well. So when you see the Muslims being persecuted there and you don't think that has anything to do with you, you're wrong. Because wherever anyone is not free to practice their religion, we're not free either. Freedom has to exist for everyone. So one thing that's happened that's really interesting is for the first time ever, Christians and Muslims are actually communicating in India because they're under the same threat of persecution. But in places like Arissa, for example, in Arissa, churches are being burned every single day. Pastors are being killed. Pastors are being tortured. People's homes are being burned. Christians are being heavily persecuted, but the government's not doing it. Now, this is what's important. The government doesn't have to do it. There's plenty of hate to go around. The job of the government is to protect its citizens from others. That's the job. So all a government has to do is turn its head and let others do the work for them. So what's happening in many places today where people are being persecuted is not that the government is doing the persecuting, but that the government is by its acquiescence encouraging the persecuting. So it's the radical Hindus in India that are doing all the persecuting, but the government's kind of happy about it. They don't do anything about it. Aren't you grateful to live in a place where your freedom to worship is protected? Do you understand what that means? And do you know why we should champion it around the world? This persecution is what was probably happening here, and it was probably radical Jews. Ironically, I know that sounds strange, but in this day and this time, what was happening is that that Christianity was getting a foothold in Europe, and the Roman government was beginning to worry about it. This is before Constantine. And the government's worried about it, and many people are worried about it, and so probably they were being constantly abused, tortured, injured by a radical community of some sort. So it was under radical persecution, and that causes people to do interesting things, doesn't it? So I know you and I probably haven't been through persecution like this, but you've been through tough times. Am I right? Have you? Because if you haven't, you need to know you will. In this world, you will have trouble. It's just a matter of living long enough to have it, I'm going to tell you. So people respond in certain ways. Some people get stronger. They're resilient, but A lot of people don't. So what happens is the Ds start to creep in, as I call them. So the first D is despair. So people start to despair. And the second D, the second thing that happens often is doubt. The result of despair is to doubt everything we believe or to doubt that God's got my back or to doubt that the world really is a place where God is trying to redeem things or to believe that God loves me with an everlasting love. And 
And the third D, there are lots of Ds, but the third one I want to talk about today and Paul wanted to talk about here is despondency. That is, I give up. I stop doing what I can do even as I trust God to do what only God can do. And when that happens, we're in a vicious cycle. And before long, our lives start to lose their movement and their meaning and their power. And that's exactly what was happening in Thessalonica. So Paul wanted to do three things. Remember these one, two, threes. All of them fit under one rubric. That one rubric is resiliency. He wanted to ask, can you, old church at Thessalonica, can you be resilient in this moment? Can you endure and can you bounce back in the name of Jesus? So the first thing he does is encourage. I think this is helpful because usually the last thing we do is encourage, right? So you know this, parents. When there's a problem, when there's something your kids are up to and you want to fix it, you tend to go fix it first. And then when you see how dejected they are, you go, oh, but by the way, you're a good person. It's better to do it the other way around. It's better to tell people who they are, remind people who they are, because remember what I've said before? People do not become who you tell them they ought to be, and for God's sake, they do not become who you tell, the opposite of who you tell them they shouldn't be. They become who you tell them they are. They become who you tell them they are. And so what Paul wants to do first is to remind these Christians in Thessalonica who they are. He wants to encourage them. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. See, you're resilient. Your faith is growing in a desert. And the love all of you have for one another is increasing. See, you're attached to community. The body of Christ is powerful. You're doing the right things to be resilient. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Now, you know this is true, right? It's one thing to have somebody say something nice to you. I like that, do you? Just nod and say you do. Maybe you don't. Like some of you going, no, I hate when people say good things to me. It's another thing to hear they said something behind your back. It's another thing to hear do you know what this person says about you? So sometimes that happens to me. Like I'll, my da- one of my daughters will have been somewhere and I hear, do you know what your daughter said about you? And I'm like, really? Yeah, usually that sort of amazes. I go, really? Or somebody says, I, I live close to one of your members. Oh my goodness, the things they say about you and your church. And I go, yeah. When John Upton was here some months ago and he said, all over Virginia, People look to you as the shining city on a hill, as the model. And wherever I go, I tell people, if you want to know how it's done, look to them. And I looked back, and I saw people going, yeah, we're good. (laughs) So Paul says, we're boasting about you wherever we go. We're telling others about your endurance, your perseverance. All this is evidence, you see, that God's judgment is right. Because the only way God's judgment is right is if there's something to be judged in the world, right? Right? So we don't know that God's judgment is right and true unless there is suffering and pain. I'm not saying that I always understand suffering and pain, but I understand it's always going to be there. And as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. See, God is just, he says. He's got your back. God is just. He'll pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Maybe you can't see it right now, but you believe it's true. And he'll give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. 
This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Because you see, the day of judgment is going to be a wonderful day for us. It's going to be an awesome day for us. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and also from the glory of his might. On the day he comes, he will be glorified in his holy people and he will be marveled at among all those who have believed. And this includes you because you believe, because you know, because you believed our testimony. What does Paul want to do first? He wants to remind them who they are. He wants to encourage them in their time of struggle. Now, if this is all we had, it'd still be a cool little letter. But at the end of the day, probably not so profound in teaching us of what this church was going through. Now, we want to ask, what prompted Paul to write another letter? So, you know, if somebody says something once, okay, but if they repeat it, what prompts them to repeat it? What makes it so important? Why did he write one letter and then write another one much like it right on the heels of it, and the answer is something must have been going on in Thessalonica that caused Paul to realize these people are not responding with the resilience they could have in Christ. And here are the two things that were happening. Remember I told you, remember the Ds? So the first one, remember? What's the first one? Despair. And sometimes, very often, what follows that? Doubt. Doubt. You ever doubted? Really? I have. You go through a difficult time, man. The world doesn't deliver for you what you think it ought to. And, and one of the most natural responses is doubt. Don't feel too bad, okay? On the cross, as he was dying, the human, the human Jesus, also human God, fully God, but he cries out, doesn't he? My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, the son of God in flesh, experienced that. You think you won't? Look, the Bible's full of doubt, just so you know. This is the kind of book the Bible is. I'll give you a psalm to read that'll cause you to think, wow, I don't doubt near as much as that dude does. It's all in there. Because one thing about our God is he loves us when we're honest with him. He loves us. Now, what had happened is in Thessalonica, the people had started to doubt, and so Paul wants to exhort them back to the core of their faith. Now, their doubt looked a little different than probably ours does sometime, but it's still doubt, so take a look at it. We probably wouldn't think in this way in our day and time, but concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, don't become so easily unsettled or alarmed by teaching that is allegedly from us. That's someone's using our name and they're saying these things, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, because these people are asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. What's happened here? We call it the parousia. The parousia is the second coming of Jesus. These were not mature Christians. This church had been planted relatively recently and for the most part, these people in Europe were persons new to the faith, and they didn't have the resilient Christians to tell them, look, we've been through this before. And so they started to wonder, did Jesus already come back, and did he leave us behind? If life is this hard, how is it possible that Jesus hasn't already returned? Now, look, your, your doubt doesn't usually sound like that. I have had people tell me this before, but it doesn't happen very often. But hundreds of times I have people come to me and say something that sounds more like this. What if I'm not saved? 
What if I'm not forgiven? What if God's grace doesn't cover me? Did you call on the name of Jesus? Yeah. Do you believe in the cross? Yeah. Do you believe in the resurrection and its power to recreate you? I think so. Are you trying to live a life that honors and glorifies God? Yes. You're saved! Stop already! It's the same people over and over again, by the way. What a narcissistic waste of time. Let's just decide God saved us and let's live as saved people, right? We trust the power of the cross. These people were worried they weren't saved. That's how you got left behind. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will come, not come, until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That is the Antichrist, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. Now, what's Paul in essence saying here? Listen carefully. You think it's bad now? It's going to get a lot worse. Good news, right? Right? I'm going to say this to you. You think the world's bad now? The Bible's really clear. It's going to get a whole lot worse. So you may think you're resilient enough to handle life right now. The question is, can you handle anything the world would bring your way because Jesus has overcome the world? Paul's saying, look, it's going to get worse before it gets better, so please understand, okay? You can have faith in this moment. When your faith is tested, you know if it's real. Now, that's not all that was going on. So let's wrap it up here. Some people had become despondent and had completely given up on life. They just stopped doing the things that we do that make life meaningful. And among the things they'd stopped doing were working or working in the right way. We're not positive which, but I'm just going to say working. They'd stopped working. They'd stopped caring. They'd stopped doing the things they could control. So... This is the final problem Paul wants to deal with. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. Because when you you enter despair and then you follow with doubt, then we become despondent. And that's what had happened here. For you yourselves know, you yourselves know, how you ought to follow our example. And what was Paul's example? We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling to earn our own keep so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now, this does not mean we shouldn't help people. It does not mean we shouldn't feed people. That's all over the Bible. What it means is within the Christian community, we ought to remind each other, God has given you capacity to do some things and do them well. Go do them. Don't give up. You know, so if you don't have the kind of job you want, find one you can apply yourselves to, and, and people have given up here. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy. They're busybodies. Just read that one with me, would you? It's so beautiful, okay? They're not busy. Say it. Busybodies. You ever notice how people who aren't busy tend to be like that? 
tell you something I can tell you from working in the church for years. Those who don't know exactly how those who do should. Hear me again. Those who don't know exactly how those who do should. People who are busy in the work of the kingdom don't complain much. They get on with helping to fix the problem or whatever it is. They're too busy to complain. But man, if you want to find people who love to disrupt, they're seldom doing very much. Have you noticed this too? One thing I started doing years ago was entertaining my family for Thanksgiving. I saw my parents aging and I said, you know, this is something I can do. And I, and I had the capacity to do it. So I will have Debbie's family, my wife's family one year, and, and we'll have my family the next. And for 17 years, that's what we've done. And so, you know, where we go, there are a lot of things to do. All the meals have to be prepared. And a number of us work at that. And a lot of dishes have to be washed. Do you know how many glasses one human being can use in a day? Dude, have you, it's, it's remarkable to me. Just leave them lying all around. Staff retreats, same way. Just stuff lying. I just go around throwing stuff away or washing stuff. So anyway, I felt like I was washing dishes every time I turned around. And it takes a while to wash dishes. So I was just washing, 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 washing. A few years ago, Debbie's parents were there, her family, smaller group than my family. And Debbie's dad get, won't we just go out and buy some paper plates and cups and be done with it? Sound like a good idea. So we did. And it was amazing. <laughs> I actually discovered there were people around all the time. I could be with. So this past Thanksgiving, it's my family. We had our big dinner and everything, and we're throwing all the stuff away. And there's one person in our family that I've never seen lift a finger to cook anything or clean a single dish. Not once. In 17 years, or half of 17 years. And that person, I have to be careful here, piped up after the Thanksgiving dinner and said, I really hate to see us do this to the environment. <laughs> now look, I'm all about the environment too, but of course there's a debate on this one. Don't get, don't get on the environment thing, okay? Just, it's one day, it's one time a year. I really hate to see us do this to the environment. So what do you think I did? I went, ha, ha, ha. And I walked away <laughs> because whatever I was going to say next was not going to honor Jesus or endear me to this member of my family. People who aren't busy are busybodies. You better get busy or you will be a busybody because that's human nature. So such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and to earn the food they eat. And as you Brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good work. This is something Paul says a lot in his letters. Never grow weary in well-doing. Now, what he's saying here is don't give up. Now, listen, folks. Some things you can't control, okay? That's just the way it is. I can't control that I'm going to die at some point. I can tell you for sure it's going to happen. It might be cancer. It really runs in the genetics of my family. I can't do a whole lot about that, but there's some things I can control. So two months and 20 pounds ago, when I got back from Christmas and New Year's, I took one look at myself on the scale and in the mirror and said to my wife, uh-uh, we ain't going here. I've been traveling all the time, in a lot of parties and stuff. I said, we ain't going here. And you know what? I can intermittent fast and I can exercise and you can too. See, you can't control everything, but you can control that. A friend of mine who smokes, 
trying to get them to stop smoking cigarettes. I mean, this is the one, the one thing we know for sure will kill you. Said to him, you ought to quit, dude. He says, well, something's going to kill me. And I said, yeah, that! <laughs> you can't do anything about the virus, but you can wash your hands and you can be cautious and careful, not just for your own good, but for older people who are in your life. You know, some things we can't control, but God's given us a capacity to do what we can. Am I right? And he's given us the capacity to work, to do well and to do good. So this is Paul saying, look, leave this to God. Salvation, God's got that taken care of, and then you take care of what you can take of. Make sense? You do what you can, can do. So I'm gonna ask you again, what about your resiliency, your ability to endure and to bounce back? Paul more famously says in Romans, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You cannot get to hope without walking through suffering. It's just not possible. And Paul gives us the reason why that is here. When the ground beneath you shakes, hold fast to God's unshakable word. Where were you when the ground shook? You guys remember this? How many of you lived here on August 23rd, 2011? Because you'll never forget that day. I remember exactly where I was. I was right here. Right here. I was doing, participating in a funeral for a Navy SEAL who'd given his life in the line of duty and was a Christian. And I had finished my little part, and Laura did a little part. She'd finished that. And she's over here somewhere. The ground started moving. You should have been in here. We got cracks. If you look back there, that crack, you could hear it right there at the balcony. It's not going to fall in. It didn't then. It's not going to now. <laughs> Bam, crack. The chandeliers were swinging back and forth. People started running all over the place. We said, all right, move to the edges. Calm down. I just stepped to the front and started saying... But it was the commander whose name we couldn't list in the bulletin who was standing right here. He was speaking at the time. This place was locked down tighter than Fort Knox. Dogs and officers and guns everywhere. And this guy just stood here like this. Thing happened and he goes. Everybody sat back down and he picked up exactly where he left off. So we're in Stevenson Hall afterwards in a reception. I walk up to him. I'd talked to him a little before, and I said, hey, man, I really, your words meant a lot to me, but I got to tell you something. The most amazing thing was when that earthquake hit, you didn't move a muscle. And he went, <laughs> I'm going to quote him directly. Don't you get on me for this. He said, I've seen a hell of a lot worse than that. He was resilient because he was tested. That's what it happens to us when we endure and bounce back. The next time we have greater capacity to endure and bounce back and we learn what we have to build into our lives to stand firm. And the biggest thing we build in is the word of God, which is unshakable. All of creation, Hebrews said, will be shaken and removed because that's God's plan. It'll be sifted. Only the unshakable things will remain. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe for our God is a devouring fire. That's power. That's power. When the ground beneath you shakes, you hold fast 
to God's unshakable word. And you, my friends, will be, not just now, but for eternity, you will be resilient. Resilient. Pray with me, would you? Father, forgive us when we go down the rabbit hole of despair and doubt and despondency rather than clinging to what we know to be true and doing what we can in the situation. Make us as individuals and families, as a church, as a community, make us, O Lord, resilient and when we face challenges. Help us to understand that you are just shaking this world out until the day of judgment comes in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. or Northern Virginia area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.